from 2Keto LLC. It's the Obesity Code podcast with Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos. Each week, we bring you lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program in Toronto, Canada. I'm Carl Franklin. And on today's show, we're talking about an issue we all face around this time of year, stress. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. This week's episode centers around IDM patient Cheryl Higgs and how her life spiraled out of control after a failed marriage and the death of her son and how she eventually found tools and strategies to combat her stress and emerge stronger and healthier. I'm the second youngest of eight children, and although nobody had a weight issue as a, a child, many of my sibling, my sisters actually developed weight problems as they got into maybe, you know, after the birth of their first child or whatever. So, uh, and I didn't have any weight issues at all until I was probably in my 30s. Here, Cheryl summarizes the events that led to her metabolic breakdown, as she put it to me. Now, I was a very athletic individual, uh, actually worked in the fitness industry. But as I started to take on more tasks in my job and more issues within my personal life, uh, divorce, uh, separation, a child went to live in the Middle East with his father, things like that. And uh, and I guess maybe childhood things started to resurface as a 30-year-old. I started to deal more with trauma from my childhood. That's when it came. In 1991, her son Michael was born. And in 1994, her marriage fell apart. Her ex-husband went back to work in the Middle East, and her son went to visit his dad in the Middle East for four months. Long story short, he came home at Christmas, and he cried almost every night for his dad. So I had to make some decisions, and my decision was to allow my son to go and live with my ex. Cheryl's decision to let him go was informed from her own childhood, growing up in a dysfunctional family. She wanted her son to be with his dad and grandparents in a more nurturing environment than she thought she could provide. I always felt I was doing what was best for my son. So let's fast forward to 2006. Cheryl worked at a community college in Ontario running a fitness area. She did fitness assessments, trained the soccer teams, did fitness classes and the like. Then she started teaching at the college and started a program called Fitness and Health Promotion. Needless to say, it was all fitness all the way. So um, as the years went on, I was very fit, and then I started being less active because I, w I moved out of the fitness arena in terms of being the instructor to being the professor. Not only was Cheryl less active, but her stress level was rising. By developing and coordinating the fitness program, she took on a lot more responsibility. And after only four years, she felt like she was falling apart. 
just walked away. I was having a complete metabolic breakdown. I ended up having to have a uh, hysterectomy, complete hysterectomy. Uh, and I was just done. So after leaving the stressful job, Cheryl continued to put on weight and was not able to take it off. The stress of her failed marriage and the fact that she couldn't be with her son added to her professional stress level, which was making it hard. Dr. Jason Fung talks about the connection between stress and weight gain. One of the things that we've increasingly recognized over the last uh, few decades is the role that stress and a related uh, topic, sleep, may contribute to weight gain. So when we talk about stress, uh, we talk about cortisol, which is sort of the stress hormone, and it's the sort of general activator. So remember that as humans, as we evolved, um, activated a certain number of systems in response to stress. So say you see a lion, you uh, activate your sympathetic nervous system, which sort of floods your body with energy as you prepare to either fight or run. So it's called the fight or flight response. In either case, it's a general activator of the body. You know, your pupils dilate, your muscles, they, you shunt the blood to the muscles. Sometimes you relax the bladder so people uh, can uh, pee themselves, that kind of thing. And then as you face that lion, you either have the energy, the extra energy and the extra awareness to fight it or to run away. In the sort of Paleolithic times, all stresses were, in general, physical. In other words, these are short-term responses. That is, if you have that lion in front of you, you will either fight it successfully uh, or you'll be dead. Either way, it doesn't matter. The stress is over. In modern life, that's not what happens. When people are facing legal trouble or marital trouble or uh, child problems, their children are sick or getting into trouble with the law, uh, financial problems, these never go away. And that's the problem. So whereas in the past, this sort of response was really directed as a one-time thing, after which you would do vigorous physical activity to burn off all that glucose. So remember, cortisol is one of the counter-regulatory hormones as an activator of the sympathetic nervous system. You actually push glucose out into the blood so that your muscles can use it. But then afterwards, it should go down. But stress is not like that in the modern day you have chronic financial problems you're stressed all day your boss is an ass so he's always riding you so you're in, under stress all day and it's uh, not like you can run away or uh, do some vigorous physical activity right there in the office so what happens is that this sort of thing builds up and what over time your body is now pushing out the glucose and eventually your insulin has to respond to bring down the glucose but it's a very unhealthy sort of system where you're chronically activating your cortisol response and that we know leads to weight gain there is a synthetic form of cortisol called prednisone, which is used in large doses to treat inflammatory disease. And that's Richard Morris, my Two Keto Dudes co-host. If you give that to patients chronically, then they almost invariably gain weight. So we know that cortisol uh, is a very powerful mediator 
of obesity and it overlaps very significantly with the insulin response because the insulin has to take care of the glucose. So what can you do about it? This is a very difficult question because if you're trying to change your diet, but the problem is stress, well, you're not taking care of the root problem, so it's not going to be a very successful solution. Sitting in front of the TV is uh, not going to lower your cortisol level very much. In contrast to what most people believe, relaxation is sort of an active sort of process. So that is, things that relieve stress are uh, things like yoga, meditation, also community, so having somebody to talk to, having a friend, um, all these sort of things we know actually can reduce people's cortisol level. We can measure their uh, circulating cortisol levels in response to these interventions and we can see them go down. So just remember that things like meditation, which are very, very powerful and have been used for thousands of years, as has yoga and all these other things, you're not actually changing the actual stress. That is, if you're having difficulties with um, your marriage, talking about it doesn't make the marriage different, but it changes your body's response to the stressor and makes your body less uh, damaged by this kind of chronic uh, stress response. So we can see that uh, when people do multiple interventions, uh, like mindfulness interventions for stress eating, for example, you can actually um, reduce cortisol and abdominal fat. There was a study published in the Journal of Obesity 2011 called Mindfulness Intervention for Stress Eating to Reduce Cortisol and Abdominal Fat Among Overweight and Obese Women. This study was done by Jennifer Dubenmier et al. in 2011. And it was a short study into interventions like, such as yoga, guided meditation and group discussions. And it showed that they could significantly reduce cortisol. Uh, and this reduction correlated with changes in abdominal fat the more you could reduce your cortisol response, the more you could reduce your abdominal fat. So meditation is very powerful and was very trendy in the 70s, um, but sort of got lost in the sort of hustle and bustle of the 80s and uh, hasn't really quite made it all the way back yet. But it's really a time-proven method of relaxation, and it's uh, what's known as active relaxation. So it's something that you do to relax. It's not something like just lying on the couch uh, staring up at the ceiling. There's a process to it, and uh, it's often very difficult at first, but the more that you do it, uh, the, the easier it becomes. And it's really just a matter of uh, getting comfortable and clearing your mind and concentrating on your breathing and practice body awareness. So often people will uh, focus on a single word or try and listen to their breathing and focus on their breathing and do that for several minutes of the day and they'll repeat it often uh, over time. Lack of quality sleep is another well-known cause of obesity. And again, becomes a very 
big problem sometimes in our modern society, especially if we're staying out late and we're getting sleep deprived. So there's again a very strong association between poor sleep and increased obesity. And one of the connecting factors is that poor sleep leads to the sort of increased uh, stress levels. Here's Richard Morris with the results of three studies around sleep, glucose impairment, and obesity. In the Nurses' Health Study, which followed 68,000 middle-aged American women for up to 16 years, they compared women who slept seven or more hours with those who slept less than five. The second group were 15% more likely to become obese over the 16-year period of the study. In the Western New York Health Study, entitled Short Sleep Duration is Associated with the Development of Impaired Fasting Glucose by Rafelson et al. in 2010 and as published in the Annals of Epidemiology, they studied 1,455 non-diabetic subjects and they found that the people who normally slept 6 to 8 hours, if you then impair their sleep so they got less than 6 hours, that would triple their chance of them developing impaired fasting glucose. And the final study... Uh, entitled Sleep Curtailment in Healthy Young Men is Associated with Decreased Leptin Levels, Elevated Ghrelin Levels and Increased Hunger and Appetite, published in the Annals of Internal Medicine by Spiegel et al. 2004. This crossover study tested 12 healthy men randomised to two days of sleep deprivation or two days of sleep extension, and they found that sleep restriction was associated with a 28% increase in ghrelin, which is the hunger signal, an 18% reduction in leptin, which is a satiety signal, and a 23% increased appetite, especially for calorie-dense foods with high carbohydrate content. The next thing that happened in Cheryl's life was pretty hard. Her son died in 2014 at the age of 23 in a car accident. It's very interesting, Carl, because I think about all that and I, you know, this is a little different, uh, but I think a lot of my weight uh, issues from childhood, like I think about childhood, I, I can't say 100%, but I, I know there was physical abuse. I can't say 100%. I think there might have been sexual abuse. I think a lot of my weight started to come on as a protection for me. And I don't know whether I was protecting myself from what was going to come. My, Michael was my only child. Uh, and, you know, I tell, tell people this many times. I always had a sense I was going to lose this child. I always had that sense. It's like I played out the call or the funeral. I had these visions of it, and at his funeral, I did stand and speak. But I always had this premonition it was going to happen. And so when that phone call came at 2 o'clock in the morning, as devastating as it was, there was a part of me that said, you were waiting for, like you knew this was going to happen. It was just really heart-wrenching, but I really think there's a spiritual kind of protection side of my weight uh, gain that I was protecting myself. 
I listen to a lot of these podcasts. I've listened to a lot of women's stories. Just even in the sense that how nothing was working for me. Like I was trying all these different things. I was running. Like, and now I know. Like I used to love to run long distance. And I knew, I know now that that was not helping me metabolically because I was just exhausted and cortisol was through the roof. And no matter what she tried, it wasn't working. She really couldn't figure it out. To console herself, she always went back to starchy treats, cookies, crackers, that kind of thing. Not necessarily sweets, but savory carbohydrates. I just started knowing I was having digestive issues and bloating, and then the weight gain. So over the course of about 15 years, Cheryl had put on about 100 pounds. Uh, when I was that size, I was just, I wouldn't take a picture of myself. I felt like a complete imposter working in an area of fitness and recreation and health and ha- knew I had serious health issues. But, you know, I would just put my head down and go right through it and say, okay, this doesn't matter, this doesn't matter, this doesn't matter. We don't tend to think of simple carbohydrates as a drug but they can have a drug-like effect on our bodies, especially when we indulge at night. And that's exactly what Cheryl found herself doing. Eating those kind of things at night kind of like was like a drug. You know, if if I talk about people that had issues like with alcohol or any kind of drug addiction, it was those night after you're done work, you get home, what's going to make you feel better? Well, you, you go to that drug of choice, right? I never thought of food as a drug of choice because I'd never had a weight problem. So when, you know, it'd be the make a sandwich, you know, eat dinner, but still make a sandwich or have chips or whatever. And then you kind of get yourself into this coma kind of state where you do, you just drag yourself off to bed and you fall asleep and you feel terrible. I've been there. You've probably been there. Most of us have been there because we all know what comes the next morning. I'd get the headaches the next morning, the fog, the not being able to function really well. And then so how I would uh, recover from that is just have my coffee, not want to eat, and then, you know, get through my day, hardly eat a thing. But then again, after work, that 5 to 9, 30, or 10 fall into that addiction where I was craving all those things. So are simple carbohydrates or sugar addictive? Here's Gary Taubes. The author Charles Mann, a friend of mine, a wonderful historian, uh, journalist, the way he put it in his book, 1493, he said, scientists debate among themselves whether sugar is an addictive substance or people just act like it is. And I think that's about the state of the science today. We can demonstrate, and it has been demonstrated unambiguously, that rats and mice find sugar as addictive as any other drug of abuse, including perhaps heroin. Um, we're not rats and mice. 
clearly sugar has a hold. It's a psychoactive substance. We know it's a painkiller because it's used to to uh, give to infants before circumcision so that it either distracts them or numbs the pain so that they can deal with this. It's very clearly, uh, at the very least, a psychoactive substance, and it has a hold over our children and many adults that other foods simply don't have. Even the de- ardent defenders of sugar in the food supply says, well, of course parents have to ration their children's sugar consumption. And then the question becomes why. And the way I think about it is if you've got kids, you don't need scientists to tell you whether or not sugar is addictive or whether or not it has a hold over your children that other carbohydrates or, you know, the finest French cheeses don't. I remember one time catching myself in the mirror and seeing myself sideways and going, oh, how did this happen to me? Like, I am never going to recover from this. Why is it we know how to put a man on the moon and we know all these things about all these other diseases, but yet we can't figure out how to cure people of obesity? Well, Cheryl thinks it's because we've been constantly told all the wrong things. All the wrong things, right? Because I still, even though working in the fitness industry and working in the health industry, what was I taught? No fat, low fat. You wanted to eat a lot more carbohydrate because there was no fat there. So I still had this old mentality in my head. Someone who is overweight, goes on a low-calorie diet, will run into the wall long before their weight target is in sight. That's Dr. David Ludwig, an endocrinologist and researcher at Boston Children's Hospital and professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Their body is begging for food. So we want to turn dieting on its head. You focus on the underlying cause of excessive hunger, which we argue, based on science going back a century, and is reviewed in our last book, Always Hungry, that something has triggered our fat cells to hoard too many calories. So the fat cells suck in and hold on to too many calories, so there's actually too few for the rest of the body. That's why we get hungry. That's why our metabolism slows down. It's a state of internal starvation. And if you take that state and simply further restrict calories, well, now you can understand why it's so difficult for so many people to stay on a low-cal diet. We've got to address the driver, uh, the underlying biological driver that's putting fat cells into this feeding frenzy. And that's just endocrinology 101, too much of the hormone insulin. You know, we call insulin the miracle growth for your fat cells, just not the sort of miracle you want happening in your body. And what's driving insulin levels so high across the population? Again, this is nutrition 101. It's all the processed carbohydrates that have flooded into our diet during the low-fat years. But it's, but it's not just about carbohydrate. That's where we start. But we also want to get the right balance uh, and types of fat and protein and also um, other influences that affect fat cells, stress hormones, sleep deprivation, um, being way too sedentary. These all can cause insulin resistance and chronic inflammation in fat cells. So Cheryl started doing research and it started to click. 
and she started the long slog through the labyrinth of stress to try to figure out her problem. But it wasn't easy. But you know, the, when I started to really realize and start to do some research about a lot of things, all the kind of pieces fell together to, for me. But even when I had the knowledge, I still was failing. And I, I have to get to the point where I had to be ready. And it was a spiritual kind of awakening after my son passed that all those pieces fell together. What was it like when the light finally turned on, when it clicked? I guess my first indication was that I was having all these hot flashes all the time. And I was like, oh, let's say I was over 200 pounds, and I was like, I couldn't get through anything. I, I'd be teaching in the classroom and it would come across me. I would just be sweating and I'd have sweat running down my back and I'd have sweat dripping off my nose and it was so embarrassing. I was thinking the whole time, this can't just be menopause. There's got to be more involved with this. And, and I started to realize the whole thing about blood sugar and that whole uh, trap I was in where I wouldn't eat, wouldn't eat, wouldn't eat, and then I'd gorge myself. Cheryl's blood sugar was bottoming out, then skyrocketing, then bottoming out again. And she was never able to find that steady level of blood sugar. And so that's when I started to realize that your blood sugar and your cortisol and your stress hormones and all those things really made a huge difference. One doctor prescribed bioidentical hormones, and that didn't help. I mean, I felt worse. I was on this desiccated thyroid medication. I couldn't go out in the sun because the sun made my head pound. Next, Cheryl went to a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine. He worked with me a bit, and then he started to say to me, you've got to get yourself off of these hormones because they're poisoning you. And I'm like, I can't believe that that's really happening. But you know what? I did. I listened to him. And probably within a week of me getting off of the 100%, the desiccated thyroid, I could go outside without a hat on and didn't have an excruciating, wicked migraine. So that's when, you know, those kind of things, when I saw that I really did have more control. Cheryl is one of those lucky people who gets to work remotely. And so she would listen to podcasts in her downtime. And around 2013, she stumbled across an interview on a podcast uh, with Dr. Jason Fung about his book, The Obesity Code. Well, you know, the interesting thing is that I was following a very low-carb diet, getting my sugars out, all those kind of things. And I was walking, I was doing lots of things, but I wasn't, I'd see maybe five, ten pounds go, but that was it. So Cheryl wasn't necessarily losing weight. However, all of these other, as we say, non-scale victories were happening to her. And when she ate carbs, she felt terrible. And when she didn't eat carbs, she felt better. No headaches, no swelling. She was sleeping better. She had more energy. But the weight wasn't coming off. Yeah, one of the main reasons that I continued with that eating plan or, you know, the low-carb, high-fat, 
meal plan was that I was just feeling better. I could look at myself in the mirror and not see the puffy eyes because that's all I would look at is just my face. I wouldn't look at my body in a full-length mirror. I wasn't seeing the puffiness in my hands and my feet. Uh, that I, you know, there were some days where I couldn't even get certain shoes on because my feet were so swollen. And you know, I was starting to feel like, oh, you know, I can do things again. I was uh, walking my neighbor's dog. Another reason why Cheryl continued is her depression was abating. When I was not eating properly, there were I didn't didn't want to go out. I didn't want to talk to people. I would do anything I could to avoid people. Most of the people I worked with knew me as a 120-pound Cheryl who worked in athletics. And then I morphed into this 220-pound person who was not even... I didn't even look like I used I was ashamed of it. I was depressed. I kept my sunglasses on all the time. I didn't want anyone to recognize me. So that was a huge part of it. And then as I started to eat a little better, I could see that I was feeling a little better. And that was enough to keep me on the straight and narrow. Finally, Cheryl was making progress. She was feeling better and was therefore better able to help herself. Her resolve really galvanized after her son died. Losing a child puts you in a different headspace, you know. And I knew my son would not want me to give up. He would not want me just to go to bed and never get out again and just stop living. So that was a huge catalyst for me because I thought, well, if I'm going to live for my son, I'm going to live well for him. She started reading The Obesity Code and everything started to make sense. But she realized she had a lot of learning to undo. Reading about fasting and saying to myself, I could never do that. I could never do it. I could never not eat. (laughs) I had been taught that you had to feed that metabolism every, you know, two or three hours, right? That's the only way to get your metabolism working. When we eat food, we switch from a fasted state to a fed state. In the fed state, we prepare our bodies to deal with the incoming food by secreting the hormone insulin. That tells our fat cells to stop giving us energy and prepares the cells in our body to draw energy from the meal instead. And finally, our fat cells will take up any excess energy. A few hours after the meal, we have consumed the energy from the meal and we return to our fasted state. Our insulin levels drop and that tells our fat cells that they are now free to release energy into circulation and we are now running on stored energy. However, If we eat every two to three hours, then we will be staying permanently in the fed state. Our insulin will be up all the time and now our fat cells will be only taking in energy and they won't get a chance to release it. So Cheryl signed up with the Intensive Dietary Management Program to learn more from Megan Ramos about getting to this fasted state. When I started with Megan on the phone calls and following the protocol, I started really slowly and I started to see results. Cheryl met with Megan online to go over her medical history and uh, to see if she was on any medication and that kind of thing. And she saw that I was probably going to be a 
pretty good candidate for the program and I definitely was in a place where I was like, this is going to work for me. I'm ready for this. You know what they say that when the student is ready, the teacher appears? Cheryl joined the IDM program about a year ago now. That's Megan Ramos, director of the Intensive Dietary Management Program. Uh, Prior to joining the IDM program, Cheryl had started doing a ketogenic diet. As Megan said, Cheryl had been following a ketogenic diet even before her son passed. But that darn stress. But I'd fall off. Whenever there was stress, I'd fall off. And Cheryl had some pretty serious stress. She's talked about the loss of her son and and mourning that loss. In previous years, on the anniversary of his death, you know, you you understand that it's a stressful time and you lean on food to help get you through that stressful time. And this year, Cheryl was much more mindful of her eating habits. And it wasn't until this year that Cheryl realized how much she depended on food to get her through the anniversary of her son's passing. And that was something that we really had to work on. So Cheryl was feeling the stress of her work life and her personal life. And as Megan explains, cortisol messes with your insulin. When cortisol, the stress hormone, is released to help us combat the stress, it sort of inactivates our insulin. Uh, so it doesn't allow our insulin to do its job that by driving glucose into cells. As cortisol is secreted, insulin becomes useless. It becomes dormant. And then you end up with this high level of sugar in your blood because it can't get into the cell because the insulin's just not working. So your pancreas responds to the signal in the blood of higher glucose by secreting more insulin, which then the cortisol makes inactive uh, and inhibits its action to put the glucose into your system, into your cells to be burned as energy. So as your body keeps producing the stress hormone, it, it keeps inactivating your insulin and then the pancreas keeps shooting out more insulin because now the blood sugar levels are elevated. And these high blood sugar levels, these high insulin levels, they trigger your body to secrete a hunger hormone called ghrelin. And then you want to eat which just further drives your glucose levels, further drives your insulin levels. It's just a perpetual cycle of, of non, non-stop wanting to eat and fat trapping. And how long does it take from when you first feel the stress to when you start making poor dietary decisions? It's probably about 24 to 48 hours when I'm feeling that kind of stress before I actually feel like there's something going on here and a piece of bacon isn't going to solve it. (laughs) So it's no surprise that Cheryl needed to get her insulin under control if she was going to lose weight. So she did her first fast, 24 hours, under Megan's supervision. I was really afraid. Uh... Because I was listening to these podcasts and I was listening to things like, oh, you know, the muscle cramps, the headaches, the blah, blah. Well, 24 hours, I had no problem. Uh, I I was like, this was easy. Yep, that was my next question, too. Did she take salt? Yeah. I knew about the keto flu, so I knew about salt in my water to help me get through that. So I was kind of doing that. And I've always been an advocate of 
using really good uh, sea salt. So her first fast was a success. She went on to do more. 24 was easy. 48 was easy. 72 was easy. January 21st, 2017 was my first day starting with the intensive dietary management program. I lost probably 20 pounds within two months. So here you have a person who was at one time awash in despair. Her stress levels were holding her back. She couldn't see how she could regain control. And after a few months of doing extended fasts, as well as eating ketogenically on her feeding days, she was now breezing through situations that would have derailed her in the past. I live with my uh, spouse who I have no problem cooking for even when I'm uh, doing the fasting. Uh, it just wasn't even an issue. I've done two five-day fasts and I've been able to still maintain creating food for him. I remember one time I was in the middle of a, it was a three or five-day fast with Megan and I was busy. I had to be in Oshawa, close to where I live, and then I was coming home and I knew I had to get something for him for dinner. So I ended up, I stopped at a place and got a pizza. Pizza was in the back seat of my car and I drove probably about 40 minutes home <laughs> with the smell of this pizza in the car. And it was like, I was like in a place of nirvana, like it didn't even phase me. In the olden days, I would have stopped on the side of the road and eaten that pizza. <laughs> but it was just not an issue. So before she started intermittent fasting, Cheryl was having all these compulsive food cravings uh, because her hunger hormones were high due to the high cortisol levels, due to the stress. And once she started fasting that reduced her insulin levels, reduced her hunger hormones, she could resist the pizza. As Megan explains, hormone-driven behavior is really, really hard to overcome if not impossible, with just sheer willpower. No one ever should beat themselves up for wanting to eat during stressful times because it's completely out of your control. It is all hormonal. You have about as much control over your appetite as you do over the weather. So if you plan a picnic for Saturday and it rains, it's not your fault that it rains, and we all know that the weather's not our fault. We can't will the weather here. And when your body's secreting cortisol and your hormones become all out of whack and your sugars are elevated and your hunger hormones are triggered, you can't stop that. So for those of us who have compulsive food cravings due to stress, there is a solution, fasting. Here's Megan on how fasting helps control these cravings. Fasting just regulates the hormones and it burns out a lot of your stored insulin because you're fueling on that excess glucose that's in your system. So when you fast, you deplete yourself of excess glucose, your insulin levels drop, your hunger hormone drops. Everything happens sort of in that order. High insulin levels, high hunger hormones. Low insulin levels, low hunger hormones, low ghrelin. But it takes a few days. I've since had times where I've uh, have eaten not so great uh, since I've even been on the intensive dietary management. And it's always got to do with things that are stressful. 
I just went through a period because I work at a community college here in Ontario. We've been on strike for five weeks. I didn't uh, agree with it. I didn't uh, pick it. I didn't receive strike pay. And that threw me. Everything about it threw me. And, and I ate terribly. I had just finished a five-day fast just after Thanksgiving here in Canada. I started on the Monday, and I made it to Friday, and it was great. I just loved it. And then that Sunday night at midnight, we went out on strike. (laughs) Right before they went on strike, Cheryl had over 150 assignments that needed to be marked in her mailbox that she wasn't allowed to touch. Uh, We all knew um, that the strike would probably end right before the holidays. So not only is she super behind on marking these assignments, which are dozens of pages each, she's having to plan new curriculum to catch the students up. And then there would be a lot more rush assignments, a lot more marking for her. There goes her holiday season. And so I I, uh, set my parameters around, okay, that's it, November 1st rolls around, I'm getting back on the wagon, basically. And I did. That's the beauty about being able to speak to Megan on those calls is because I just tell her exactly what's going on. I asked Cheryl, now that she's on the other side of this process, has her idea of what obesity is changed? I watch these programs with people, like, you know, that 600-pound life whatever show on TLC or stuff like that and I'm like oh like if people only knew how really in control they could be it's you know it's just watching them just gorge and feed themselves and all it is is just a just a reaction to that addiction right they're not lazy they're not you know they're not um weak It's just that they've been fed a bunch of untruths about nutrition and their body and their body biochemistry. I look at things differently because I think now I'm just, okay, what's the issue that got you here? As opposed to, oh my God, what a lazy person who can't stop. Just put down the pizza slice. There's always an emotion underneath that, right? Cheryl had developed a new way of looking at obesity and also some new strategies for her own health. I've been on the program almost a year now, so it'll be January 21st, and I've lost just over 50 pounds, probably 53, 55. And, you know, it's unbelievable because uh, my stepdaughter got married um, in September and one of my goals was to look better than what I, and I achieved that. I had a beautiful dress. I was, people were amazed at how much I've changed, you know, and it's like, oh, well, what have you done? I hope you're not doing anything stupid. And like a lot of people who are on this journey, I don't tell a lot of people what I'm doing. I just say, oh, I'm intermittent fasting. I'm just, you know, cutting back my carbs. Uh, I don't tell them a lot of really what I'm doing. Um, I still want to uh, continue, and actually I've kind of, um, from now to Christmas, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday are going to be fasting days. What's the best thing about this therapy 
I think the beauty of this program is that because I'm in control, if I slip up, I slip up. I know how to fix it, right? I guess maybe I'm more empowered with that. Because you know what? Life is going to happen and things are going to happen and there's going to be, you know, other things that will happen in our lives that are going to be um, devastating. But I know that I've got this, I've got this strength, this inner strength that um, I'm doing these things. I'm doing, I'm living, I'm achieving things in my, you know, I'm 56 now and uh, I want to keep going and going and going and do things and new experiences and uh, you know I know that um, my son's watching and saying way to go mom you know you're 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 doing a great job I just want to smile every day and I want to be happy and I want to smile and I want him to know that I'm smiling despite the fact that um, you know he's in spirit uh, per se, and uh, that I'm not, I, I'm not looking at what I've lost, I'm looking at what I have gained because he was in my life for 23 years. And, and that, that, that was a bit of a, a struggle to get to because originally it was more, I'll never see him get married, I'll never be a grandmother. So Cheryl took back control of her life, her physical, psychological, and emotional life. And that allowed her to excel in her professional life. Just knowing that I have a strategy now where I, uh, I understand physiologically what's going on in the body and how my hormones can affect my mood and uh, my blood sugar and my cortisol and all those things are so connected to how I'm, how I'm seeing the world or how I'm seeing what's going on that my choice is to... Um, if something does happen, then I just, uh, it's going to make me feel better if I eat that avocado and those eggs, uh, as opposed to a pizza slice or, you know, something that's uh, french fries or onion rings, those kind of things. And as for her depression? I always kind of describe depression as, for me, it was like there's a big black cloud over there and it's coming, but I'm not going to look at it. But it's there, I know it's there. And then all of a sudden it would descend upon me and I'd be immersed in this depressive state. And it, it was so difficult. Well, I don't even see the black cloud now, Carl. It's like, it's blue sky, you know. And if, if there is one over there, then it can stay over there because I know that I can make it stay over there by what I'm doing. And a lot of it is meditating, it's walking, it's spending time out in nature, it's, you know, being around people, choosing to be around the people that I love as opposed to just putting up with people that are, are people that are more negative or bring about stress. Uh, I do those kind of things on a regular basis and it's, you know, just even if it's just going outside and being outside in nature, it's, uh, it's a stress reliever. Congratulations, Cheryl, and thanks for sharing the story of your journey. We wish you all the best. And that's our story for this week. You've been listening to the Obesity Code podcast, lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, 
who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. I'm Carl Franklin. We'll see you next time.